Hey, how's it going everybody? Welcome to Found Flicks. On today's Ending Explained, we're looking at Ty West X, where a group of filmmakers in 1979 set out to make an adult film in rural Texas. But when their elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast find themselves fighting for their lives. This is a really fun throwback from Ty West, and is similar in a sense to his earlier work, House of the Devil, because they both set out to accurately recreate a specific era of films. And with X, it feels like it's even more specific, as it's hard to not think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially when it comes to the visual style. It's clear Wes is a longtime fan of the genre, and this has many amusing homages to tropes, along with some surprising meta moments regarding the art of filmmaking itself. This definitely comes into play with how our story plays out. The first almost hour is a straight up sex movie, there's no kills or any real scares at all, and then it suddenly completely drastically shifts into horror, and from then it never lets up, as in classic fashion, our hapless movie crew is taken out one by one in delightfully gory ways. Perhaps in a story sense, there isn't much depth to investigate, but there are a lot of interesting character dynamics that really enhance the movie. It's there that the deeper themes of things start to really come to the surface. So let's check out X, breaking down the story, the major themes at play, including what each character represents, as well as explaining the ending. We open on a remote farm somewhere in Texas, or you know, New Zealand. A cop drives in, kicking up dirt, and the frame then opens up from the square border of the barn doors to expand into widescreen. I took this to mean we're in for a kind of synthesis of styles here, as the 4x3 aspect ratio was more common in the past compared to the more modern widescreen. This was a nice visual way to show us the bridging of the two, all in one shot. The first one as well. The sheriff takes in the sight of a bloodbath, coming to a body covered in a sheet. Following a literal trail of blood through the front door, we see an axe jammed in the ground. On TV, a preacher rattles on about these dark times, and how he must look to the Lord for guidance. Submit yourself to him and resist the devil. He can speak from personal experience as his own daughter was taken by swindlers and has fallen tragically into a world of sin. Another officer has something to show the sheriff down in the basement. He lifts his flashlight to a horrifying sight. My God, he utters, but we don't see what they've discovered. We then jump to 24 hours prior and slowly make our way towards the grisly opening. Amongst the cavalcade of goofballs that are brought together here, Perhaps the most important is Maxine. She does a huge line of cocaine as her boyfriend Wayne enters, reminding her to ease up. You know what they say about too much of a good thing. He inflates her ego, calling her special. There's nobody else like her, and orders her to giddy up. She stares intently at her own reflection and psychs herself up, saying she's a fucking sex symbol. They work at an admittedly pretty dingy looking topless establishment, also including another dancer, Bobby Lynn. As they drive away in their appropriately inscribed van, we get a sense of just how gross the place really is, nestled amongst a nightmare of industry along the coast. They're joined by the rest of the gang, and they hand out scripts for their big movie shoot. And based on the title, The Farmer's Daughters, it's definitely a highbrow production. Yet the opportunity is still exciting for the entire crew. Bobby bursting, Hollywood, here we come. But slightly crafty Wayne doesn't believe they'll need Hollywood. Movies like this can make them instant stars on their own. She reminds him of a previous failed production of his, but he blames it on the IRS mucking things up. Either way, Bobby already has her head in the clouds with big dreams of a massive house and a pool so she can tan her tits. Believing she's been blessed by God, it would be a sin to not take care of them. Everyone knows God loves tan tits, it's just a fact. She asks Maxine the same question about her dream, but she only stares off into space without an answer. Stopping off at the Peddler Gas Mart, presumably a reference to the hotel from West's earlier film, The Innkeepers, Maxine is chomping at the bit to be a star. 
Wayne tells her to be patient. If this is a success, they're made in the shade. But she complains that she's been patient her whole life. She needs to be famous and is sick and tired of not getting what she wants. Annie Wiley feeds further into her desires. After the people see this, everyone with a pulse is gonna know her name. She wants to know why, and he tells her that she has that X factor, something that truly makes her stand out or special, eliminating that double meaning of the title there. Bobby approaches the meek sound girl Lorraine, asking if she works on all of her boyfriend's films. Sometimes she squeaks, and she asks if that's her boyfriend regarding Jackson. Sometimes Bobby smiles. As for her movie maestro boyfriend RJ, he has grand ambitions of making this some kind of artistic dirty film, even from the editing standpoint, bringing up the unique way that French films of the time were put together. Yeah, not sure we've got an artistic endeavor on our hands here. They slate a shot of Jackson filling up gas, and Bobby has a great idea. Tilt up from the nozzle, and it'll look like he's using his penis. Great idea, actually. Even RJ is impressed, and Bobby grins that she has great taste, too. When Wayne comes out, she gives him grief about him getting the wrong kind of cigarettes, and he gets agitated, asking, you don't want to be working with a hard hat, do you? And of course, she doesn't. I feel even this little interaction fills us in a lot of why they're so determined and excited. They genuinely believe this is their path to stardom, and that definitely beats working in construction or whatever. Down the road a piece, they come across a grizzly wreck. It appears a semi crashed into a cow, seeing it's now just a mound of flesh. Maxine has to turn away at the site, gagging that she hates blood and guts. Well, better get used to it real quick, girl. They arrive at a rundown farmhouse, or as Wayne dubs it, their own studio backlot. Yeah, it's pretty lovely. Wayne first needs to check in with the landowner and knocks at the screen door. Meanwhile, Bobby and Jackson just can't keep their hands off each other. Lorraine is taken aback, as this isn't what she had in mind helping her boyfriend. It's smut. Also, are we 100% sure that this dude isn't actually Lou Taylor Pucci from the Evil Dead remake? It's kind of uncanny. He callously asks, when does she become such a prude? She argues she isn't, but doesn't know why exactly he's doing this. He boasts once again of his intentions to make the first good dirty movie. Wayne hears an old man, Howard, shouting out from inside. At first, he seems confused and doesn't remember Wayne, things turning a bit alarming seeing him wielding a shotgun. After giving a few more details, Howard finally remembers, oh right, you're looking for a place to stay. Wayne admits to being scared a bit, and he tells him not to worry as he doesn't keep the gun loaded. And Wayne agrees, saying he does the same with his own piece that he keeps stashed in the glove box. Jackson takes in Howard's weathered and ancient appearance, calling him one ugly son of a bitch. Bobby slaps him at the rude comment, but well, he's kind of not wrong, definitely gross looking. While unloading, Maxine sort of meets his wife Pearl, noticing someone staring down from the upstairs window. Howard slowly leads them to the nearby boarding house and gets taken over by a coughing fit. Wayne tries to check on him, but he insists that he's fine. He then informs him that the building was made for soldiers way back in the Civil War, asking if Wayne ever served. Nope, thanks to flat feet, he smirks. But on the other hand, Jackson served two tours in Vietnam, joking that he's had enough farmers trying to shoot at him for two lifetimes. But something else has caught old Howard's eye, staring pretty much slack-jawed at Maxine. Wayne throws a protective arm around her, telling him to watch his eye. That's his future fiance there. Howard brings up that he didn't mention having all these other people along with him, and Wayne butters him up with more cash. It does seem to work, but Howard scowls that he doesn't like him, or any of them by the looks of it. Maxine is still troubled by Howard's leering, but Wayne dismisses him as being old and harmless. His pecker hasn't been hard since before she was born. No doubt he would be jealous of people like them. This sets up the two drastically differing perspectives here. Our movie crew is virile and full of life, while Pearl and Howard are no longer sexually viable. They're just old.
world. This winds up being a much bigger problem than anyone would realize, that is for sure. It's now that they understand just how much Wayne fibbed to Howard about what they're doing here. But according to Wayne, it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. You notice how this guy speaks almost entirely in catchphrases and platitudes? Kind of funny, really. It's like he thinks he's smart, but he's really just quoting other things all the time. Seeing Howard driving off, Wayne gathers the troops together to give the people what they want. As Bobby and Jackson excitedly get to filming their first sex scene, RJ does his best to direct their actions, which actually starts to annoy them. Let them just do what they're here for, Jackson barks. Bobby laughs and then goes right back to her moaning and dirty talk, showing us it's all truly just an act. Max wanders around outside as they keep porking. Coming to a lake, she decides to dip her toes in the water. Behind her, we can make out the outline of Pearl's wild hair amongst the trees. Max doesn't notice and strips off her overalls diving in. While Wayne is over the moon with how things are going so far, and RJ is happy to take credit, it's because it's cinema, not a dirty movie. Pure cinema. Wayne doesn't care about all that crap, just keep doing what you're doing. People's eyeballs are gonna pop out of their skulls when they see this. He's, um, really excited apparently, asking RJ to feel how hard he is. Uh, yep, great, great for you, bud. Did I need to touch it? Jackson too basks in his masculine prowess, flaunting that he's born for this work. But Bobby lets him down that it's all just acting. He doesn't believe that she's that great of an actress, and she does a demonstration that immediately causes Jackson to appear defeated. She tries to keep things light, telling him not to look glum. You were fine. He then tells her he loves her, and she gives a polite, bless your heart, in return. See, she's playing her own games here, and it's actually the guys that are truly the biggest dopes around. Maxine continues floating in the quite serene waters. That is, until a gator is seen lying in wait. She decides to paddle back to the dock, and the gator crests the waters behind her, getting closer and closer. She heaves herself up and hops out just before disaster strikes. The crew then film a pretty expected kind of plot scene, with Jackson portraying a stranded traveler just needing to use Bobby's phone. She naively tells him they don't have a telephone, but Daddy will be home soon, inviting him inside. Hmm, I wonder where this is headed. Going back to join the others, Maxine encounters her elderly counterpart, Pearl. The lady gives a half-hearted wave that Max returns. She then invites her over, and Maxine obliges, but appears to not exactly know why. Like, why am I doing this? She cautiously enters the house, and it appears creepy and empty. This whole moment taken straight out of, well, actually, several Texas Chainsaw flicks. Pearl enters, surprising her, and offers some lemonade. The two sit in awkward silence in the dark kitchen. Clearly uncomfortable, Max gulps down her drink and says that she's got to get back to her pals. Pearl then takes her to some old photos, and she lays out how she longs to be young again. Howard served in both world wars, and back then would do anything for her. That's the power of beauty, she says. Back then, she was a dancer, just like Max, and then the war came. She laments how in life, not everything turns out how you expect. She turns to Maxine, telling her that she has a special face, and asks her to look in the mirror. This is intercut with Jackson and Bobby rolling around in the hay, again contrasting the youth with the withered old. Pearl reaches out her hand to Max, and she recoils, asking to know what she's doing. Then Howard comes home, and Pearl tells her to get a move on. This will be our little secret. Max is still confused, Pearl only shushing her in return. She runs into Wayne, who appears out of nowhere, saying he's been looking for her. They've got a film or scene, as they're losing light according to RJ. She psychs herself up once more, doing some nose candy, as her previous words of encouragement echo in her head. She proclaims to her reflection, I will not accept a life I do not deserve, and is ready to get down to it. You know, it's pretty much the same setup as before, but with Jackson meeting another of the farmer's daughters tending to the cows. He's surprised that her sister didn't mention her, but Max isn't. She's always jealous because she's younger and gets all the attention. When talk turns to that elusive ride into town, she thinks it would be unwise to disturb daddy, as it will only make him angry. But she offers that she 
she can give him a ride herself. Oh, that's very kind of her. And it's time for Maxine's big scene with her riding on top. Bobby and Wayne stare on from the sidelines with looks of pure joy and titillation on their faces. Even Lorraine is looking a little hot and bothered, but it's the surprise witness, Pearl, that gets a real eyeful through the window. There's a brief flash of Pearl imagining herself in Max's place, and this clearly has a big impact on her elderly libido. She goes on to do her darndest to seduce Howard, but he rebuffs her, blaming his weak heart. And then coldly walks right past her, leaving poor Pearl frustrated and rejected. After her performance, Maxine struts confidently down the halls, and Bobby tells her that she was amazing. And she can also see why Wayne left his wife for her, which is pretty funny. Wayne reiterates once again that she's special. She's got that X factor. Based on their previous reactions, it seems that Maxine might really have something unique, a true star in the making, and not just meaningless words to stroke her ego. And the experience has made the reserved Lorraine start questioning herself. She wants to know if it's weird watching her man be with somebody else, but Wayne shrugs that it's just business as long as the camera is running. The camera changes things, she wonders? That's right, it's not real life anymore, but instead a movie. Well, what about love? How can you be in love and be with other people? The others think that she's questioning their morals, and Max suggests that those are outdated ideas. You decide who you have sex with or make love with, and besides, it's not like you can control attraction. Robbie brings up how Lorraine was eyeing Jackson earlier, making Lorraine blush, but they both say it's okay. They don't mind. Everybody likes sex. They're just not afraid to admit it. Then the subject turns to that inevitability of one day growing old, and that's why they feel they have to enjoy themselves while they can. The truth is, they turn folks on. It scares them, but they can't look away either, akin to something like a foxy car wreck. Somewhat shrewd Wayne brings up that's why he's hopeful for the burgeoning home video market. People can watch dirty movies in the comfort of their homes without judgment. Porn isn't just gonna be for perverts anymore. Lorraine isn't totally sold on their whole free love kind of thing, but she did like what she saw today to her surprise. Uh-oh, the shy religious one's starting to come out of her shell. Jackson then starts plucking away on acoustic guitar, and Bobby sings some Fleetwood Mac in a kind of strange bonding moment. Not sure why any of this happens exactly, with the split screens and everything. Must be that fancy French film editing that RJ mentioned. After it concludes, Lorraine blurts out, she wants to do it. She wants to be in the movie to everyone's shock. That goes double for RJ, who puts his foot down that she cannot be in it. He even has the gall to say that this is his movie, and you can't just suddenly change the story midway through. But what about Psycho, she inquires, and he corrects that's a horror film which they aren't making here. Oh, well, things are starting to get a little bit meta here. And in a way, just as they are discussing, our plot is about to take a massive midpoint turn. He keeps rambling about his high ideals, and she turns what he said earlier on him. When did he become such a prude? Gotcha. Wayne takes RJ outside, who is still reeling, and Wayne fills him in on some valuable lessons about young women. If she's serious about it, she's going to do it whether you like it or not. If anything, trying to stop her, she'll only go on to make even more movies. RJ is still shell-shocked. He thought Lorraine was a nice girl. Wayne is flabbergasted at this, and is sorry to tell him that none of them are nice girls. This is once more that friction between more conservative ideals of what a girl is and a more liberated one, which these girls certainly are. This moment not only represents a big change for Lorraine, but the movie itself, as she is more or less the final innocent soul amongst the group, and they hammer home the importance when she purposefully removes her cross necklace before doing the scene. RJ dutifully grabs a camera to capture things as Lorraine hops on top of Jackson. Hilariously, Pearl's eyes shoot open at this precise moment, like she knows they're having sex somehow. Almost like Jason Voorhees or something. Premarital sex, die! Later, the whole house is asleep, sans a broken RJ sobbing softly in the shower. He goes right for the van keys, wishing them good luck without him. Just as he starts to pull away, he comes to Pearl right in front of his path. Don't fear the reaper, appropriate
appropriately on the radio. He comes out to see if she's okay, slowly putting a hand on her shoulder. She turns to face him, and she brings him in for a hug, emitting a soft whimper as they embrace. Man, this is one horny old lady. She does try to make a come on, to which RJ denies. She's quite tired, it seems, of all the rejection, and has reached her breaking point, jamming a knife into RJ's neck. As he crumbles to the ground, she jumps on top of him and brutally stabs him over and over. Killing him at least appears to have lifted her spirits a bit, standing up and doing a little dance routine that was actually quite a bit reminiscent of her role back in Suspiria. Kind of weird, wonder if that was on purpose. She then assures that the rest of the gang won't be getting too far, stabbing one of the van's tires and snatching the keys. Looks like it's going to be an old folks massacre tonight. Yeehaw! Lorraine stirs awake, and when seeing RJ not in bed with her, she goes outside and bumps into Wayne. She explains about how she feels guilty. She didn't want to hurt him or break up. He knows that she didn't do anything wrong. It's that RJ just needs to toughen up. After some coaxing, he still agrees to try and find him as she's worried, with her going to the house, and he checks out the barn. When she gets closer, the porch light flips on and Howard steps out looking for his wife. While Wayne prattles on about the two keys to a relationship, an absentmindedly steps right onto a massive nail. He painfully removes the plank from his foot and shouts for help, seeing a shadow slink by some holes in the wall. He hobbles over and puts his papers right up to the holes and stares around. He briefly sees Pearl and she jabs the pitchfork right through his face. Convenient pitchfork holes in your barn wall. Howard tasks Lorraine to go fetch a light down in the cellar so they can find his poor wife and oh great, a cellar is always a fun place in horror flicks, right? She opens the door to pitch blackness and carefully makes her way down the stairs. She is able to quickly find the light, but perhaps unsurprisingly when going upstairs, finds that Howard has locked the door. Yep, if you thought just Pearl was murderous, they both are. Another question we might have is, has the couple done this before? And Lorraine gets to find out for herself. Flipping on another light, it reveals a dead naked dude chained to the ceiling. Yikes, who knows what Pearl did to this guy? And indeed, this makes it clear that the movie crew is not their first murder rodeo. It's Jackson who wakes up next, believing that he heard something. He comes to Howard outside, still in search of his missing wife. She sometimes gets confused, he says. It happens sometimes after dark, which sure sounds like sundowning. Remember the visit? Jackson offers to lend a hand, his massive dong waggling in the shadows the whole time. Thanks a lot for that. It's definitely flopping. Through Pearl's POV, we see her stalking around the house and comes to Maxine's room. She stands behind her, watching her sleep for a bit, before removing her clothes and hopping in bed right behind her. She then starts to caress and rub all over her body, cuddling right up to her. Hmm, that's pretty unsettling. In their search, Jackson and Howard split up, but unluckily, he only has one flashlight. Jackson isn't worried, though, thanks to his time back in the rice paddies. Once a Marine, always a Marine, he boasts. As he navigates through the woods, he comes to a car sticking out of the water. Seems like the couple have been busier than I thought. Ah, and this is also a clear psycho reference, which is amusing. I see you, Ty West. He spots Harold's light nearby, following it right into the water. He only finds a flashlight and searches frantically in the dark for him. Lorraine is still locked up, crying and shoving at the chained-up basement door. She scans through the crap soon around for a weapon and settles on a hand axe, the same we saw stabbed in the porch at the beginning. Jackson gets startled by Harold, throwing back what he said. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Whoa, old man still got some tricks. Howard, too, has some difficulty thanks to his rotting and erectionless body. He can't give Pearl what she wants anymore and derides Jackson that he'll never understand. You young people can do whatever you want. He brings up how a previous hippie came here trying to entice his wife and, well, we can guess what happened there. Just as Jackson suggests getting back to the house, Harold brings up the shotgun to his chest, blowing him away. It's like with Pearl, she's killing people that rebuff her intentions, but Harold is killing people to dispose of any potential suitors for his wife. It's a weird kind of dichotomy going on here, brought on entirely by them being old. With Pearl, Maxine rolls over, coming face to face with her, still 
tenderly stroking her back. Her eyes flutter open and she shrieks at the bed intruder. This jolts Bobby awake who encounters Pearl walking by in the halls. She rushes to Max, her screaming in horror at the violation. Meanwhile, Lorraine hacks a hole into the door and almost gets the lock undone. But Howard appears, bashing her hand, completely destroying it like it is straight up mangled, y'all. She cries for help and he lets her down that no one is coming for her. He then jams the gun barrel into the hole, ordering her back down and to be quiet. He then cranks on the TV to the evangelist and I'm like, man, this guy is on 24-7. Really dominates the airwaves, at least local ones. Bobby finds Pearl up by the water's edge. She then kindly wraps her in her blanket and relates as she says she has a Nana just like her. Bobby even considered of being a nurse and Pearl slaps her, saying she doesn't need one. She spits more about how unfair everything is. Why should she get to have it all? All she's done is be a whore. Bobby is rightfully offended as she was only trying to be nice and makes a point that Pearl isn't ready to hear. It's not Bobby's fault that she didn't have the life she wanted. I mean, she definitely has a point there, but this is not to Pearl's satisfaction. Calling her a bitch and shoving her into the water. This time the gator is very quick and suddenly emerges striking, all screaming and flailing limbs in the water. Blood starts to fill the lake and the ripples soon cease. Man, think how many people you could feed to that thing. Who knows how many people they could have killed. Max furiously attempts to scrub the old lady from her skin and just about to seek out the others, hears a wheezing approaching. She hides as the couple enter the room and declare the place is empty. Howard tells Pearl he does have one left still at the house for her, but she is only interested in Max. As we know, she's different and had something special like she did. I mean, it's pretty obvious with the parallels here, right? Just as Max has, Pearl moans that she's sick and tired of not getting what she wants, and the couple try to work on their particular issues. Yes, she is still special to him and has felt that way since the moment they met. Tell me I'm yours and still want me, she croaks, wanting to feel young again. He does want to bed her, but there's still the worry of his weak heart. She's confident and can take it, and things start getting hot and heavy geriatric style. Oh yeah. The bed begins to creak, seeing Max is hiding right underneath, and she takes the opportunity to sneak away. She runs right to the van, discovering RJ's corpse, and then hears Lorraine screaming for help. She first grabs Wayne's gun from the glove box, but as we recall, he keeps it unloaded. Hope she knows that. She comes to an unhinged Lorraine, who blames her for everything, and she doesn't listen when Max tells him they need to stick together. She bolts right out the front door and gets immediately blasted. Howard's saying just after, he did tell her to stay in the basement. I will admit to being quite shocked at this moment. I just assumed Ortega would survive and potentially would have even been the last one alive. So I appreciate that kind of subversion of expectations. The virgin isn't the final girl as the trope typically goes, but the fame-hungry promiscuous one who's all coked up the boot. Once again, proving as we've been told the whole movie, she's actually the one with the X Factor, the true star. The couple then discuss how to deal with the pile of bodies around and Howard wants to play it smart, making mention of dumping them into the pond in the morning. Told you, Gator Chow. Max stays out of sight while they drag Lorraine's body in. Well, she's not quite dead, emitting a little gurgle that scares the hell out of Howard, gasping in shock and collapsing. Max jumps out and demands the keys. Pearl cries that he's having a heart attack, but she does not give a crap. Pearl points to the kitchen and Max trains a gun on her, threatening they're gonna rot after people find out what they've done. Pearl tries to take her to task. She saw what she was doing in the barn, derisively calling her a deviant little whore. Pearl sees, we're just the same. You'll end up just like me. Max disagrees. She's not a kidnapping, murdering sex fiend. She's a star. She then chants her mantra, she will not accept the life she doesn't deserve, which strangely matches up perfectly with the omnipresent evangelist words. Max attempts to fire, but yeah, it's empty. Pearl then goes for the shotgun and pulls the trigger, which comically sends her flying through the screen door. The evangelist summarizes the moment well. Now that's what I call divine intervention. Pearl moans about her hip and still asks for help. Max 
Max only shushes her back, and she keeps calling her a whore, weakly crawling after her. But most importantly, she again tries to convince Max she's not really special. It will all be taken away as it was for her. Max throws the van in reverse and plows right over her head, popping it like a disgusting balloon. This will be our little secret, she says, before driving off into the night. Divine intervention, she scoffs, and does a bump off of her hand. Praise the fucking Lord, she says sarcastically, as dawn crests the horizon. Back with the evangelist, we are given one last revelation that continues the theme of bucking conservatism. He reveals that one of his own flock was lured to a life of sin, and he removes a tarp, showing that it's none other than Max. This adds another layer to her character, as she was presumably being forced into a particular conservative Christian box as a person. This is not who she is, and thusly she set out on her own to achieve her own life's ambitions. Not one of people telling her what to think and do all the time, I mean, who wants that? This starts to poke at the film's bigger themes. Again, we have a very drastic different set of perspectives being presented here. At its core, it's kind of like the old ways versus the new. The main conflict of the movie comes from the butting heads of these different ideals. And the couple, in a way, also represent that conservative hanging on to the old ways of doing things. They are trying to recapture their youth and long for that life they no longer have. But the point is, there is no going back. No matter whether you like it or not, these younger hippies with their free love and drugs are going to be taken over. It's also interesting as even amongst the movie crew, there are many different shades of this as well as sexuality represented. Most of the guys are ultimately misguided goofballs, especially in their de facto head honcho Wayne. He thinks thanks to his age of 42 and more experience, he knows all there is to know about women and is more than happy to dispense his wisdom to RJ. But he's more of a braggart than anything. And then there's a mention of a previous failed film. This guy is basically a sleazebag and hustler. Mr. Film Maestro RJ is surprisingly more conservative in a sense, at least when it comes to relationships. He's perfectly happy with everything going on until Lorraine wants to get involved. Not as free-minded as he thought, huh? Then there's all of his artistic bluster, but from what we saw, Farmer's Daughter was nothing extraordinary. Once more, he's kind of all about image, but with no depth or talent. As for Jackson, he is young and good-looking. Oh, and of course has a massive dung. All that certainly helps. But this makes him full of himself, as seen with Bobby pretending during their lovemaking. His masculinity is what defines him as a man. And I mean, he did get snuck up on by old Howard. Does not look good. The girls, on the other hand, are generally presented as much more capable in comparison but there's also some differences between them. Lorraine, we know, starts as conservative, but gets kind of lured into the lurid world of the movie. She didn't know at first what she was getting into, but it obviously stirred something dormant in her, which was also probably something she was told was a sin her whole life. This experience really did change her in a fundamental way, even what she defines as love and relationships. Max is sort of her counterpoint in a way. She was also raised religious, but then busted out to forge her own path and she's been on a very different trajectory than Lorraine ever since due to this divergence. Yet we also know that she has the same longing that Pearl holds onto in her old age. I won't live a life I don't deserve. It's interesting how they are similar in some ways, but drastically different as well. Finally, we have who I found to be surprisingly the most complex character in the movie, Bobby Lynn. Based on her appearance and demeanor, she might come off as an airhead, but that is definitely not the case. She's actually quite clever, and I mean, how did RJ not think of the gas nozzle dick gag? I mean, come on. And then there's, of course, her act in bed. It's all a kind of game that she's playing to get what she wants. But she's also the only one of the entire gang that we see be genuinely kind when tending with Pearl. She's also a little bit older and is obviously still trying to have as much fun and hold on to her youth as long as she can. She even says as much. You gotta live your life now because you won't be around forever, so don't live it repressed. Or, you know, you'll wind up being old and horny enough to turn murderous. Hmm, best to avoid that. With that, we've reached the conclusion of this ending explained for X. Don't 
forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you guys think of X and its ending? What are you hoping to see in Pearl? What's your favorite Ty West joint? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Foundflix. See you next time.